All right, if you will, go ahead and start making your way back to your seats. Grab your coffee, get your water. Say, we'll talk more later. Happy Father's Day. I'm just going to keep talking until... Ah, there we go. Hey, I got you back. Happy Father's Day to you fathers. This isn't going to be a traditional Father's Day sermon, but love what the Lord does and working through the life of fathers. So happy Father's Day to you. So welcome. If this is your first time, this is Redstone Church Elizabeth, and a lot of people are out of town this week, but you guys are here. So let's see what the Lord has uh, for us this morning. You know, we've been walking through 1 Peter uh, for quite a while. It's been a journey. Uh, we're bringing 1 Peter to a close kind of today. Um, we'll, we'll look at it again next week because we're going to read the whole book in its entirety. But this will be our last passage of 1 Peter. So let me mention a couple things and then I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to jump right in. Uh, the first is just mentioning we came off the mountain uh, Sunday afternoon. You guys, if you were here last week, you guys had tables set up and you had what we call table Sunday, which we do periodically. Great passage. It sounds like you had great discussions, which we could have been here, you know, for that. Um, but one of the things that we kind of walked away from and we'll have a like a semi family meeting in mid-July to walk you through like, hey, here's some of the pretty clear takeaways that we feel like that we received from the Lord that really relates to Redstone Elizabethan. So today's not the day for that. We'll do that later. Um, but one of the things was pretty clear and it just, it relates to worship, right? We, we've got to make sure that it, at the end of the day, the one thing that we're doing is we're, we're presenting Jesus, we're presenting the gospel, that we're declaring the truths of the word of God for the purpose of not just that we understand like first Peter and all of the implications of first Peter so that we know the word of God well, but it's so that the word of God opens up this revelation that there's a God who is in control. There's a God who loves us. There's a God who knows us and he is to be worshiped and he's given himself for us. The scriptures have to push us to Jesus and they need to push us to him in such a way that we worship. So if we're coming on Sunday mornings and if we're like getting to know each other and that's great. And if we're you know, doing a lot of other things right. But if we don't have kind of working in our hearts this desire to worship this God that we're learning about, then we've missed the whole point. Do you see that? And I feel that this morning. And I just feel the weight of that, you know? So I'm going to pray, you know, for us as we step into the teaching of the word, um, that, that that'll be the thing that'll become clear, not just the truths, because the truth of the matter is, as we try to teach, sometimes we, we won't be clear and some things, you know, we will probably mess up, right? But, and you're welcome to come to us with any of those things. But the thing I want you to make sure that you do see, and if you don't see this, and if you don't hear this, then we've really dropped the ball right? You need to hear the gospel and you need to hear the goodness of God because that's what Peter is pushing us to. And it's beautiful and it's marvelous and it's wonderful. So today we're going to kind of wrap all that up together. That makes sense? Okay, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for these people that are here. Lord, we thank you for this breath that we breathe as a gift from you. Lord, we thank you for speaking through your son and through your word. Thank you, Lord, that you allow us to have the freedom to come together on a Sunday morning to open it up and to hear what it says so that we would know you, God, creator, Jesus, savior, and that we would walk with you, that we would have fellowship with you and that we would worship you. Lord, on this Father's Day, remove the obstacles in our hearts and our minds that would keep us from focusing on what you might have for us. And Lord, as I always pray, oh God, my words are many. And sometimes I trip over my words. So what is of me and of the flesh fall to the ground, but may the truths of your word that you intend to use to change us, to grow us, to reveal your son to us, Lord, may those words and those words alone remain. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, if you've got your scriptures with you, turn to 1 Peter 5. If you don't, go to your phone or look up on the, um, the screen 
or you can go to your worship guide. There's a lot of ways you can get there, but we're going to finish up our passage. This is 1 Peter 5, 8 through 14. I'll read it with you, and then we'll jump in. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then it's got these final greetings, which I threw up there. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have briefly written to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all who are in Christ Jesus. So here's his kind of salutations, if you will. And he ends 1 Peter. We're going to pick up 2 Peter when it comes into the fall. But as I worked through this and as I read through this and as I prayed through this, there was one particular phrase. He says a lot of good things and we'll hit those. But there was one particular phrase. I couldn't get it out of my mind. I couldn't get it out of my heart. And it's going to be the, the phrase that I'm going to use today as the catalyst to take everything that he said from 1 Peter 1.1 to this end, and it holds it all together. So go back and look at the passage again, okay? And let's just read through it, and then I'm going to show it to you when we get there. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So here's the enemy. And he says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Okay, so there's, here's the suffering topic that we've heard over and over. After you suffered a while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then he jumps into this praise, to him be the dominion forever and ever. So those are, that's like the meat of like the things that he's given, given to us. And then he goes into the salutation. And in this one phrase, he wraps up everything. He says, by Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, and then here it is. Okay. He says, this is the true grace of God. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This, this, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So what is the this that Peter is referring to? Peter's saying the this is everything I've attempted to share with you in this letter. All of these components that we've talked about and that we've presented in these five chapters, this is what the true grace of God looks like and how it's worked out in the life of another believer. And if we don't get that, then we'll not get Peter's intentions that he's trying to bring to the church. He's saying it's this and not that. And I'll walk through these with you. It's true grace true grace that leads to, as we saw in chapter one, holy living. Not some form of grace that would enable us to live as we please or mirror the world, to not be different, to not be holy. No, that's not true grace at all. It's this true grace that we saw in the early chapters that changes the way that we see ourselves in the world, that we recognize, as he says, we're strangers, we're sojourners. This isn't our home. True grace is not some form of grace that would allow us to find our pleasures, happiness, identity, purpose in this world and to feel at home here. No, that's not saving grace. That's not true grace. It's true grace, as we saw in the middle chapters, that reminds us that unbelievers are watching which causes us to live in a way that shows honor to everyone. Everyone, no matter what. They see that we treat people differently, that we show honor to them, and that's inconsistent with what we see in the world, and they take notice. 
even if it's a bad boss, hard or unbelieving spouse, government official that we disagree with, or whomever. And he covers all of those in this book. But it's not some form of grace that would keep us, ourselves, on the throne with our will, our happiness, proving ourselves to be right in every situation, being the thing that we're going for, and dishonoring people along the way. No, that's not true grace. That is not saving grace. It's true grace, as we saw throughout the whole book, that recognizes that if we are truly believers of Jesus and believe this gospel, that we will suffer. We will suffer. Christ was hated, and we will be too. Christ was persecuted and insulted, and we will be too. Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, the scripture says, will be persecuted. And Sam did a really good job of reminding us that suffering doesn't happen due to or because of God's anger or wrath or because in some way, shape, form, or fashion that he is punishing us. That is faulty thinking. That is a lie from the enemy. That punishment was taken upon Christ himself. That's the purpose of the gospel. That's the purpose of the atonement. That punishment has been dealt with. But Peter is saying that there will be suffering. And this true grace will include the suffering. So true grace is not a form of grace that never endures suffering. Never undergoes spiritual warfare from a true adversary that we're going to look at in a moment, a true enemy. No, that's not saving grace. That's not the true grace that we are to stand in. So he ends this by saying true grace, true grace is a grace that has saved you and me, but in doing so, it has also changed us. And it is changing us. And it is slowly but consistently conforming us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the only true grace that exists. So if you haven't seen that true grace, or if that true grace is not changing you in the ways that I just mentioned, then that's where you begin. Salvation is by grace. It is through faith. But it is a grace that enables Christ himself to live within us, to change us, because we have the constant presence of the Holy Spirit within us, and that changes every relationship that we are involved in, and it changes how we live in this world. This true grace, it brings, that brings salvation. As Peter shows over and over, though, it will include suffering. It's always been a call to die. To die to ourselves as we submit to the Lordship of Christ. A call to die to our will daily instead of living for ourselves. We live for him. A call to die to the idols that we once turned to and to worship him and him only instead. A call to die to our insistence on security and comforts in this world and to be willing to suffer instead. That's the true grace of God. That's where he ends today and we're, where we will begin and end today as well. Last week, you guys looked at verses 5 through 7, I believe that it was, or maybe it was 5 and 6, and it was started with, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and cast all your anxiety or all of our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. We would, as elders, love to have been here to hear the takeaways that came out of your tables. I heard that it was rich and that it was profitable for building up the church. But if we look in at today's passage, we understand that the verses that you looked at last week, those are the catalyst to what we're, we're, we're talking about this week. Those aren't separate verses. Those aren't separate takeaways. It all fits together. And it begins with, be humble. So he's saying, be humble. I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. Cast your anxieties upon the Lord. And then he's jumping into this. Be humble, cast your anxieties upon the Lord, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, he prowls, he's seeking to devour, resist him. All of that fits together, but it begins with humility and an understanding that the mighty hand of God is present with you. 
and he loves you and he loves me and he desires that we cast all of our anxieties upon him, but then why would he say to be sober-minded and watchful? Well, he answers that. He's reminding them and he's reminding us as we go through this book that we have an enemy. We have an adversary. We have a formidable foe and he intends, church hear me, he intends to bring harm to you, to your spouse, to your family. That's why, that's why we must be humble and remain in a state of humility and constantly be praying and casting our anxieties upon him for we are and we will be sought after, prayed upon, and we will be attacked. On that note, I'm going to share two truths with you. It's funny, I was thinking about this as I was preparing the lesson. I always get an evaluation every year from the staff and the elders. And, one, and they're pretty honest about things. And one of the things I got this past year was not so many truths and make them shorter. So I'm trying to do that. So two truths today. And the first one is this. Truth number one, if you are a Jesus follower, you do have a true adversary. If you're new, this is in your worship guide. There's only a few fill in the blanks. Everything else we've made pretty easy for you just to read, but you do have a true adversary, an enemy who desires, just as I said, to cause you harm. He masquerades as an angel of light. He's tricky. He is conniving. I was talking to Larry Kimball this morning before church, and we were just discussing how much we absolutely hate him. We don't like him. We don't like what he does. We don't like what we see him doing in other people. And the way we combat that is we, we're alert and we're prayerful and we're, we're standing before the mighty hand of God and we're casting our anxieties upon him. And in doing so, we're humble, sober-minded, watchful. When I read that he prowls like a roaring lion, my mind immediately goes back to, remember the old Jungle Book cartoon? Remember that one? Shere Khan, remember Shere Khan? He was a formidable foe. He was just sneaky, tricky, just kind of crawling around looking and seeing what the day held in store, and he was conniving. He was deceitful. He used his words for trickery, but the purpose was that he wanted to devour, and that's our enemy. He's active. He lurks. He isn't omnipresent, so he and his demons may move about from place to place all of the time. And if you are a Jesus follower, church, and are seeking to further the kingdom and live for Christ, yes, the enemy wants to devour you in various ways to keep you from continuing on that course of seeking God first and seeking his kingdom first. If you are a believer and you're not really living for him in this moment, he wants to devour you with ongoing enticements and other things, anything that would get your mind and your heart pulled away from the things of God. And if you are not a true believer at all, he wants to devour you with doubts, lies, hollow philosophies or religions, that are either humanistic, based upon you at the center, or they're built on works. Either way, he's a prowler, a lurker, a fierce and roaring lion, and his intentions, one way or another, is to devour. So what does Peter say we are to do when, not if, that happens? He says, resist him. There's a power here for us. There's a, there's a thing that we can do that enables us to make a volitional choice of a response to him when he comes against us. When he looks at the church and says, he's going to come, and when he does, you have the power to resist him. How do we do that? We went through a glorious study in Ephesians 6, and this is way too many words for you to see if you're in the back. But this is what Ephesians 6 
12 and following says on this topic. It says, for we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. If you're in the middle of a struggle, a controversy, an issue with somebody else in this world, understand the real issue is not with flesh and blood. It's not with people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, and he says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand to resist in the evil day. And having done all to stand, to stand firm. And then he says again, stand, therefore. And he goes through this glorious arsenal, the belt of truth of what Christ has done. The breastplate of the righteousness that we're clothed in because of what Christ has done. Our shoes fitted with the readiness to share people the truth that will set them free. The shield of faith, which will quench all the fiery arrows of the evil one. The helmet to adorn our head and protect our minds of the salvation of what Jesus has done and the sword of the spirit, which is the truths that are revealed in the word of God and to pray at all times. And then he says to that end, keep alert, be watchful. You've got what it takes. And, you, and we talked about this and you remember if you were here, this arsenal in Ephesians 6, it's not different components that are all separate. He's saying, put on the salvation. Put on the atonement. Put on what Jesus has done because it's those gospel truths that the enemy hates and he cannot withstand when you do put them on. We must be saturated in these gospel truths and that is what is meant by resist him firm in your faith. Resist him by putting on the gospel. Let's continue. First Peter 5, 9b through 10. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If you haven't read the book of Job, I strongly encourage you to. It's the actually the oldest book in the Bible. And the book of Job covers everything that this passage is speaking of today. Because in it, we see God, sovereign God, ruling the world. But we also see the Lord giving permission, key word, for the enemy to inflict pains of various sorts upon Job. And we see Job struggle through these pains and afflictions. We see him fighting to stand firm in his faith. And we see God's sovereignty ruling well over all of his afflictions. And he brings about his will for Job and for everyone who is watching Job. That includes Satan. It includes Job's family. It includes his friends and the angels himself who we learn are always watching these things as God's glory is being revealed to mankind. Job never fully understood the full why of his suffering but he did learn the lesson that God is much, much bigger than what he had thought. And he is completely in control and he is all wise. That's what he learned. And that takes us to our second and final, actually, truth of the day, which is, if you're filling in the blanks, under God's sovereign control, your adversary may be allowed to inflict pain. Man, there's a lot wrapped up into that truth. That causes a lot of questions to come out of our hearts and our minds. God is sovereign. Start there. He's good. He's loving. He's kind. He's merciful. He's gracious. So if he is allowing a pain to come, it must be for good purposes. If we don't get that, then we're going to be messed up when suffering or when pain comes upon us. It'll always probably be a mystery 
to me of how this works, how the Lord sovereignly allows pain and sufferings to come. But I have to go back to the fact that he is good, that he is love, and he is just, but there will be sufferings. So I have to be able to reconcile those that God's allowing something to come upon me that is for his eternal purposes. It may have something to do with me and conforming to the image of my son and, and, and helping me to be humble in this moment. Or it may be used, as we've talked about, for some other purpose or for other people that are involved in this situation, the way that they see Christ in me, the way that I'm suffering. Or so that one of these days, as I go through this thing that I'm going through that is terribly painful... I'm going to be able to minister help and healing and comfort to someone else later who's going through something very similar. 2 Corinthians 1. I don't know, but God, you're good. But under that truth, a truth that can be hard to understand and comprehend, this passage also supplies us with what I'm going to call three comforts. And I started to throw these into like a bunch of fill in the blanks, but that was going to overwhelm you and you would have been more concerned with filling in a bunch of blanks. So those are in your worship guide, but I'm going to walk you through them. Comfort number one, others throughout the world are also going through similar sufferings. That's what this word is saying to us. You're not the only one. We're not the only church, the only people. It's a call to the church. You can somehow be comforted just knowing that believers before us likewise suffered and believers throughout the world are actually fighting to endure similar sufferings even now. We are not alone. In a marvelous book I highly recommend by Nick Ripkin called The Insanity of God, those being imprisoned and persecuted for their faith in Asia said this. They said, don't pray that the persecution would stop. Don't pray that there won't be sufferings, but pray that we'll be able to persevere through them. There's a promise that we will go through sufferings. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings is a part of following Jesus. And they're saying, don't pray that we'll never be persecuted or never have sufferings, but pray that we'll bring glory to God as we persevere through those. And then Ripken goes on to say, likewise for us, the goal is never to live pain-free and sufferings-free, not in this life as a Jesus follower. Suffering is a part of the life of a Christian. Peter's gone out of his way to remind us of that all the way through 1 Peter in the previous chapters, that believers will suffer. Comfort number one is, you are not the only one. It's always been this way. Comfort number two, when, he, when it says, after you've suffered for a little while, we are reminded that, he says, the sufferings are never permanent. They will only be for a little while. Even if that means that the little while is our short tenure, on this earth, they will come to an end at some point. My favorite phrase in all of the Bible is, it came to pass. It didn't come to stay. That's a terrible pastor joke. You know, it didn't come to stay. At some point in time, it's going to pass. And that leads to our third comfort. It's a glorious comfort. It's one that my heart has grabbed a hold of last night and this morning and I found myself just praying this prayer of this comfort over and over and over and worshiping the Lord in it. And it's that God himself will, and listen to me, and I'm gonna give you the definitions from the Greek of what these words mean, will restore, complete, put in order, mend, form. He will restore, he will confirm. God will confirm, he will establish, prop, fix, make more firm. He will strengthen to make more able to make strong and he will establish, lay the foundation, cause to be made steadfast. God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you afterward. Do you see that? That's a glorious promise. 
Let that sink in to every fiber of your being that God himself is for you. He will fight for you. He will do these things for you. Why? Because it says in verse number 10, he is the God of all grace. And as you saw last week, he cares for you, not just church universal, but for you individually. And sometimes that's the hardest truth for us to believe. Sometimes that's the hardest truth for me to believe, that he loves me and he cares for me. But it is true nonetheless. Grace is the channel through which all God's blessings flow. We deserve nothing, but he extends grace because he is the God of grace. He gives us undeserved or unmerited favor and blessings. It is God choosing to bestow blessings upon us, sinful as we are. It is him choosing to come to us to lay down his life for us, knowing that all we would do is crucify him. It's grace beyond our understanding. He is indeed the God of all grace. And through this grace, after we have suffered for a while, he himself personally will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. He may use circumstances. He may use his word. He may use other people. He may use a Sunday sermon. He can use however and whomever his sovereign will chooses to use. But no, it is not them. It is God himself who is doing the restoring. The God of all grace. Yesterday in CBR stands for Community Bible Reading. And we're just going through Leviticus. Actually, Numbers. We're in Numbers right now and and 1 Thessalonians. But on Saturdays, it's always the Psalms. Yesterday's Psalm said this. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Yep, that's the adversary. He says, oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. And Sam, you read it at the beginning in Psalm 91. You know, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High and rests in the shadow of the Almighty. That is where we go. That is where we go. Satan is a serious adversary, but God is stronger. He cares for us. He will help us through. So yes, there's no place for pride here. I have to confess pride often. We must be clothed with humility to humble ourselves. Cast our anxieties upon him. Be sober-minded, be watchful, be strong in our faith and in our gospel understanding because there will be attacks. There will be sufferings not just for you for anyone else who names the name of christ not permanently and that's important why because god is in control god has defeated our adversary on the cross and the last enemy was death and he reigns and reigned over death at the cross triumphing over the enemy and triumphing over death. God will only allow the suffering for his own sovereign purposes. And when it is time, when it is his time, God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. For he knows that we don't appreciate light until we've truly experienced darkness. We don't appreciate heat until we've been really, really cold. We don't appreciate vision until we haven't been able to see. We don't appreciate health until we've been really, really sick. We don't appreciate being pain-free until we've really experienced pain. God knows this. He is sovereign, he is good, and he is in control. And sometimes those thorns may remain for a season. But then even there, he reminds us we're strong when we're weak because then 
His grace is sufficient for us and we must rely upon Him and that is always a good thing. And I want you to see what Peter does after he shares these truths and shares the comforts that go along with them. The fact that God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Listen to what he says next. And after you've suffered a while, the God of all grace who has been called called you to this eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. And then he says, to him be dominion, the dominion forever and ever. Amen. These truths cause Peter to exclaim a praise, a worship unto God, a praise that acknowledges that the truth, the truth that true dominion belongs to him. The word used here for dominion means power, might, strength, and authority. It's dominion that shows that no matter what it looks like on the outside, God is in control. That God is powerful, mighty, strong, and is in authority over all. And as such, He and He alone is worthy of our praise. The only one who is all-knowing everywhere at all times and perfect in knowledge and as such is the conqueror of the savage, prowling, adversary, insert your own word, that seeks to devour. Peter begins chapter 1 in verse number 3 by exclaiming, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he just unfolds these blessings. And then he ends with, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And to that I reply, yes, amen. Indeed, God is in control. So I'll bring today's passage and sermon to an end by finishing where I started. With a quick snapshot of the key truths from the book of 1 Peter. And then afterwards, I'm going to briefly give a challenge to us fathers. So let's go back and look at 11 and 12. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Final greetings by Silvanus, a faithful brother. As I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. The true grace of God is a call to holiness. We've heard it over and over. Be holy for God is holy. Don't be comfortable here. Your citizenship is elsewhere. So you are to also be sojourners. Repeated over and over. We live for another purpose. And we can never be satisfied with what this word, world has to offer. It's a call to show honor to others as Jesus showed honor to the Father. Which he shows from every angle. The world is watching. So show, show honor in all of your relationships, whether that's at home, work, with unbelieving neighbors, within the church, between elders and members of the body, show honor. And it's a call to know that sufferings will occur. They will be a part of following him. Stand firm in your faith. Trust sovereign, powerful God, the one who has the dominion over all through it. It's a call to persevere through these sufferings for the glory of God and to trust his purposes along the way, knowing that his timing, the timing of the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, and I just can't get away from these words, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Yes, the true grace of God and the true gospel will include all of these things, and that's how Peter ends this book. And with the reminder, as we talked about at the very beginning before we started, that this should cause us to worship. The point of giving the word of God is not just so that we'll understand all the you know, the, the facets and intricacies of it, but they'll reveal Jesus as Lord and Savior and God and that he, we'll see that he loves us and he's given himself to us so that our hearts would follow him and that we would worship him. And I worship him this morning.
And in my heart, I say to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen and amen. You are good. You have always been good. My heart and my mind forget that you are good sometimes. Sometimes I wonder, is God watching because this pain is real? And then I remember he's the God of all grace and he knows. He doesn't miss anything. And everything that happens in my life is for his purposes. Oh, the pride that can be there. The, the forgetfulness of, of humbling ourselves before this holy God and trusting him. But that's what Peter's calling us to. This is the true grace of God and it covers all of these things. Our response to that, humble ourselves and cast our anxieties upon him over and over and over again. Do you feel it? Do you see it? Just the weight of what Peter's given to us in these five chapters? It's amazing. It's amazing. In closing, on this Father's Day, I'd be remiss if I didn't take a moment to speak a few of these truths into the minds and to the hearts of us fathers. I will be brief, but I want to use today's passage as a catalyst, so just keep that in front of you. I read it earlier. We've gone through it the whole, this morning, so I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But using the language that's used in this passage, the charge to us Christian fathers is to, and we've just included these in your worship guide. Number one, fathers, let your kids see that you are mentally prepared and spiritually aware. Mentally prepared and spiritually aware. A true spiritual protector of the home, sober-minded and watchful. Second, let your kids see that you are willing to suffer for your faith. They need to see that. The third one, let your kids see you keep calm and carry on because you are trusting in the sovereign God through it all. Your kids need to see that. Let your kids see you praise him through the suffering. And in summary, let your kids see the true grace of God lived out in your life. And the one I didn't include is in when you don't, that you repent really well before your kids an honest confession of daddy has failed to see God's goodness. Daddy has lost his faith. Pray for your dad. I want to lead you well. It's hard being a father. This is a good recipe for how we can do it well, that we would stand in the true grace of God and truly stand firm in it. Lastly, I would say anytime on a Sunday morning you step in and you're hearing about the grace of God and you're, you're hearing us exclaim these marvelous truths of what Jesus has done, I was the kid that heard that stuff every Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night for many, many years before I truly understood the grace of a Jesus who would die for me. If your heart stirred and if you recognize when you talked about the true grace of God, and being holy and being a, a sojourner and, and being honorable in all of your relationships and being willing to suffer. My life hasn't been like that at all. I've lived for myself and I still live for myself. I don't know that I've trusted this Christ that you're talking about. I don't know that I've truly received the true grace of God. I implore you, I beg you, if you hear the Lord's voice, don't harden your heart. Step into that. Talk to me. Talk to Sam. Fill out a card and say, just would love to talk with a pastor. You know someone here that you can trust? Go to them and say, hey, can we talk? I've got some stirrings in my heart. I'm not sure what it is, but I think I need to talk to somebody. We can't assume that everyone who walks through these doors understands this true grace of God because the way Peter presents it to us, it's all-encompassing, and it's a different, it's a separate, and the word is holy, way of living our lives. And if you're not seeing that in your own life, there's a good chance that you have not received the true grace of God.
So step into that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Just be still before him. It's Father's Day and it's Communion Sunday. So we're not going to pass the microphone around today because I really just want the Lord to, to speak to you and to me and to meet us where we're at. And then we're going to be reminded of the glorious gospel as we take communion. So just bow your heads. Lord, we are here for one primary purpose this morning, and that is to make you known. That includes various facets, to be encouraged, to be challenged, to be convicted, to be comforted. But it's to make you known, and as you are made known, that we would worship you. Lord, we have said that you are sovereign over all, that you know us, that you care for us, that you exercise dominion over the universes and over each of our lives. And in this moment, my prayer is that you are exercising dominion in the way that you're connecting to each individual that is here. May hearts be receptive to however you are choosing to reveal yourself. Thank you for 1 Peter. Thank you for this glorious book that you've given to us. And I pray that it would sink into our hearts and forever change us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Stepping into a time of communion this morning, fellows, if you will, you can go ahead and start passing the elements. It's a beautiful way to take what we've discussed in 1 Peter and how we've ended it today and it takes us back to the gospel. We used to always have communion every week, and it looks like we're probably going to begin to start doing that again in the fall. But for right now, it's been a monthly thing, and we love doing it. And the reason we love doing it every week, and we don't think that there's a mandate in Scripture to do so, there's one verse that alludes to the fact that they might be taking communion each week, but I think it's, it's up to us when we do it, but here's the purpose of it. The purpose of the communion and the purpose of the communion elements is to remind us of the glorious gospel. It's to remind us of who God is and what he has done. This is the passage I'm going to read to you and then we'll walk through and we will partake together. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, and let me hit pause. I need to say this. This meal is for believers. These truths only make sense to you if you are a Jesus follower. This body and this blood, it points to the gospel. This is a message for believers. He says in verse 23 and following, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus knows he's going to the cross the next day. He's always giving these these displays, these visuals to people. And in this case, Jesus, as the bread of life, he says, this bread that you're getting ready to take, partake, you may not get it in this moment, but you will after tomorrow. This is my body, and I am giving it for you. And Jesus, on the cross, lays down his body 
for us. And what he's saying is every time we receive the Lord's Supper and take of this bread or this cracker, we're reminding ourselves of the sacrifice that he paid for us. Let me pray that in, into our souls this morning, I hope, and, and then let's partake. Father, may we understand that you chose to lay down your body for us. And Lord, as we partake, may we see that, receive that, confess before we take if we need to, Con confess that we failed to live out the gospel and believe the gospel, but may we not live in guilt. May we understand that you died to take away all of those sins. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You can partake. And then he says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. There's a new covenant. There was an old covenant and it was law. And there's a new covenant that's full of grace. They're both full of grace. But this is a new covenant that takes away our sins. And it says, this covenant is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then listen to this. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. He died. He paid the penalty for your sins and until he comes. And he's very much alive and he's going to come back for his church. You proclaim that when you partake. Jesus pours out, I'm shaking this morning, he pours out his blood and he does so in a way that after he dies, they can partake over and over and over to remind themselves that the blood of Jesus covers all of our sins. And church, the blessing for you, if you know the gospel is, no matter what that thing is that you've done and whatever struggle is there, if you confess it to the Lord, it was taken care of on the cross. Receive that as you partake this morning. Father, help us to feel the, the, the weightiness and the heaviness of your blood covering all of our sins and help us to see that this same Jesus who died will rise in our hearts on a daily basis and will return for his church one day. Help us to see that and to be encouraged by that and to rejoice in Christ's name we pray, amen. After you have finished partaking, let's stand and let's finish by worshiping him this morning.